the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. This is Cliff Taylor standing in this week for Kieran Hancock. On today's show, I'll talk to economist Megan Green about a turbulent week on Italy's financial markets and also about developments in the unfolding US-China trade deal. Later on, we'll be looking at the latest half-year figures from Greencore and full-year figures from Ryanair with Joe Gill of Good Body Stockbrokers and Irish Times business journalist Owen Burke Kennedy. But before that, Laura Slattery is here with our roundup of this week's business news. You're very welcome, Laura. Thanks, Cliff. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook boss, was in Brussels this week for a grilling in front of MEPs, but it didn't go quite as might have been expected. Tell us what happened. Yeah, there was much criticism about the format of the, the Q&A session in the sense that it turned out to be more Q than A. Right. Um, the uh, MEPs spent over an hour asking Mark Zuckerberg questions and the idea was that he would answer them all at the end. But there okay. was a time limit on the session, which, you know, they actually did go over. But in total, I think he only spent about 22 minutes answering questions. And one of the questions was that he was able to cherry pick which ones he answered and which ones he left. A bit like like, uh, the Irish budget or parliamentary committees, oftentimes the uh, the politicians spend more time answering than the... Yeah, I mean, there there seems to be a a kind of a common uh, thread to uh, these kind of hearings, whether it's in Washington, where, of course, Zuckerberg was recently, Mm -hmm. uh, whether in Dublin or whether they're in Brussels, that often that it seems to be the sound of the politician's voice uh, takes precedence over the really getting any kind of making any headway in in, in getting answers from the person in question. But then again, maybe it's it's, that's not what it's about. Maybe it is all about the, 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 the show piece event. And there was Facebook did say it would you know do follow up written answers if if there was anything else that that Brussels uh, wants to know. Yes, I suppose oftentimes the, the real action takes place in in talks behind closed doors. Did he say anything of significance, Laura, in in, in the answers that in the questions that he chose to answer? Um, no, again, I think I think really the the the. the what was significant was what was not said. So specifically, any questions to do with enough Facebook was a monopoly. Uh, <laughs> he just completely ignored. Right. Uh, and he, but he, he won't have liked the tone of the questions, which are all kind of heading towards perhaps uh, Brussels, uh, perhaps uh, referring Facebook to uh, the anti, antitrust uh, investigators. Um, there was a lot of questions about data privacy. And I think we can, might be able to hear a little bit about what he said about that. It will enable you to see the information we receive from websites and apps when you use them and to clear this information from your account and turn off the ability to store it associated with your account going forward. So this is a a commitment by by Mark Zuckerberg, I suppose, to try to answer some of the public concerns about the records. I mean, what he's uh, actually talking about there is a delete button. And uh, he first they first signaled that they might introduce that earlier uh, this month and it it would allow people to clear their browsing history uh, Mm. uh, more easily. Um, he also was able to point to, of course, there was more more than 200 apps suspended from the platform in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Mm. But what he didn't answer, and this is quite important, was uh, it, the decision to move uh, data stored on 1.5 billion 
subscribers out of the EU, specifically from Ireland to the US. And mm. the speculation is that they've done that to avoid the GDPR regulations. Mm. So that was one thing that, you know, he wasn't... wasn't so it's unlikely to allay to, all, all the consumer concerns, all the user concerns about uh, about, about their data. Yeah, and, and when Guy Verhofstadt, who's a Belgian MEP, he asked mm. some of the most pointed questions. Mm. Um, you know, he he asked, uh, you know, would it be... Would it be seem like a good deal to Facebook if they were to have to separate off uh, WhatsApp or uh, Facebook Messenger or Instagram. Does that seem like a good idea to them? And of course, he didn't answer that question, but I think we can probably guess the answer is no. Okay. And then he also asked uh, Zuckerberg what he wanted his legacy to be. Uh, did he want to be seen as a kind of a Bill Gates figure or a Steve Jobs figure, someone who has arguably uh, um, improved society and improved the world? Yeah. Or did he want to be seen as a kind of a, a monster, a digital monster was the phrase he used, uh, that ha- has helped to destroy democracy and society? So, uh, you know, that's very hard to answer that question. Absolutely. But. OK, closer to home, IRES REIT, Ireland's largest private land- landlord, had some news this week. Tell us about that. Yeah, now I think this story kind of perhaps illustrates uh, more than any story perhaps we've had so far the rise of the, the so-called the, the super landlords in, mm. in Dublin. Um, just to look the figures on this and, and how it tallies with the, the, the housing crisis in Dublin. Eris uh, Reid, as you said, is Ireland's uh, largest private landlord. They closed uh, their deal to buy 128 apartments at Hampton Wood in North Dublin. It's kind of north of uh, between Finglas and Ballymun. Mm. Um, they're, 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 and they've put 104 of these beds on on the rental market. Mm. The one beds are going at 1,500 wow. a month and the two beds at a rent of 1,850 a month. And they're not subject to the rent controls, obviously. And th- those figures are far greater than what someone who bought an apartment in that mm. area mm. would be paying in a mortgage. Obviously, that depends on the length of the mortgage and the interest rate. But it, it looks like, you know... the. <laughs> And especially in light of perhaps some of the, the preferential tax treatment that a company like Iris Reed can acquire. It really does look like the state is sort of supporting dramatic shift away from owner occupation to arguably uh, exploitative rental market. Yeah, I mean, a recent report from Daft did say that in many cases now it is cheaper to buy than rent. I guess the problem for many people looking for houses is that there are so few houses to buy, so they are... Yeah, I in mean, fact, it's, forced to rent. This is a supply. This is a supply issue. Perhaps mm. this wouldn't be subject to so much uh, criticism if it was only a tiny percentage of uh, you know an abundance of mm. supply. You know, um, Pierre Starty from Sinn Fein came out uh, there and said he just said it was disgusting. Said it was tax funded exploitation, and it is certainly very eye catching for the area that it's in. This is not the city centre. Mm. You know, it, it was reached last year had an average rent of, of thousand five hundred around that mark, right. and in the city centre it would have been you know, closer to 2,600. But I think we can see with this particular example just exactly um, how scary I think this is if, if it continues. Extraordinary. does seem to set a new benchmark, all right. Uh, finally, Marks & Spencer has been up and down and up again over the years. It seems to be in the wars again, according to its latest, uh, its latest announcements. Yeah, I mean, I actually think it's been, it's almost a decade, I think, since it sort of peaked um, in terms of uh, profitability. And yeah. it just, it's just hit, hit by a kind of a, a storm of, of factors. And one of them, of course, is a sort of online competition. But yeah. even where it had the edge before, such as uh, sort of food delivery and, and, and quality, it's just so many competitors now in the UK in particular, uh, where, of course, most of its shops are, are, are based. Now, it's said that it's going to close more than 100 stores mm. by the end of 2022. And it listed a bunch of them for 
like that will be earmarked for closure this year and next year. And, gonna, you know, it's affecting hundreds of jobs, but also a lot of the, the town centres, of course, where they're, they've been located in many cases for decades and decades and decades. Now, none of them that have been earmarked for closure are in Ireland, but I think, you know, there's got to be some fear that, in the you know maybe when we get to the full one hundred, mm. um, that some of the smaller stores here might be um, in the list, so it's it's not good news um, either for the retail sector or for the consumer. I think, yeah. um, because of course, and and other businesses because of course there's other businesses uh, who that you know locate near Marks and Spencer in order to catch that footfall. Sure. So if the Marks and Spencer disappears, then it has a knock on effect for the rest of the. Did it expand area. too quickly? Obviously, it opened a lot of new stores, a lot of smaller stores in certain locations. Did it? Did it go go yeah, too far? I think I think that that's some, that's part of the problem. Um, but the other, I mean, some of the areas where it's closing are, you know, as I said, they're actually long term established stores. Mm. So actually, you've got to look at the the health of the consumer mm. as a, as a factor for why mm. um, they've been you know under uh, <laughs> spotlight for not being quite as say as as fashionable as it should be, yeah. uh, sort of assuming that maybe the, the slightly older customer base that it has doesn't care about fashion when, of course, it does. And that's been a long-term problem that they haven't been able to fix. Laura, thanks for joining us with the Roundup of the News. Thanks, Cliff. I'm joined now from Brussels by Megan Green, who's Managing Director and Chief Economist at Manu Life Asset Management, to talk about what's been a panicked few days on Italy's bond markets, amid concern over the high spending policies mooted by a potential coalition government in the Eurozone's third largest economy. Megan, the Italian markets, uh, the bond market and the equity market, have taken fright this week at the prospect of a new government uh, comprised of the Five Star Movement and the Right Wing League. What's been upsetting the markets, Megan, and where do you see this one going? So, first of all, I think that the markets have moved a lot uh, relative to the past year, for example. But if you roll it back a couple of years, actually, the market reaction has been fairly tame, given that you have this anti-European populist coalition that's agreed a government program. Um, I think what is bothering the markets, um, though not as much as it should be, in my opinion, is the government program for these two parties. So they've agreed a few things. Um, One, they've agreed to roll back some pension reforms that were pushed through in 2011. And that's maybe the most important piece to think about because uh, a debt sustainability analysis for Italy looks fundamentally different with and without those pension reforms. So if they're rolled back, Italy's already massive debt burden is set um, to go on an upward trajectory. It won't stabilize now. Okay. Um, secondly, they've agreed to a universal basic income, so a handout for um, poor people. It's a redistributive measure, um, but they haven't really said how they plan on paying for it. And they've also agreed a flat tax, um, again, without many details on how they'll pay for it. And all of these things are set to blow the deficit out, which will make Italy's debt even less sustainable. Um, On top of that, they've given one hint on how they might pay for this, um, and that's by issuing um, mini bots, Mm -hmm. which are essentially short-term debt, um, so T-bills, that are based on future tax revenues that they may or may not get. And that's problematic for two reasons. First of all, um, if they issue these mini bots, um, they don't count in the public debt. Um, They'll be printed by the um, lottery ticket um, printing machines. And so they'll be sort of off balance sheet. Um, and so in a way, I don't I don't see Brussels saying, no, it's fine. Just go ahead and borrow mm. money, but don't add it to your official figures. Or Frankfurt. Um, secondly, 
right, Frankfurt also wouldn't appreciate that. Um, secondly, uh, in a way, this could be turned into kind of a parallel currency. So as I said, they plan on printing it domestically and they're using their lottery ticket printing machines. Um, and if they don't end up getting the tax revenues that are coming through, um, they could actually exchange them at a discount. Um, so essentially, it could just be a new currency. They could get around that in the short term because they're not calling it a currency. And so technically, it's legal. Mm. Um, I think probably Brussels will put up the biggest stink um, about these mini bots. Um, and that's in response to the first point I mentioned, which is it's just all off balance sheet. And so I do think that uh, the EU will go ahead and say this isn't in line with our fiscal rules or our accounting rules, um, so you can't do it. But either way, you're, you've got this new government in Italy blowing out their deficit, um, potentially trying to issue their own sort of quasi-second parallel currency. Um, and that could be maybe be managed if they were able to finesse things with Brussels and Frankfurt. But um, these two parties in this new Italian government are deeply anti-European. And so if they feel like European institutions are trying to encroach on their sovereignty, I think we're looking at a bust up. And this would really, I guess, drive a caution horses through the Eurozone budget rules, the Eurozone fiscal rules, uh, which the commission is so attached to. It certainly would. And, um, and you know, the two parties uh, in this coalition have said that that's kind of the point. They don't really believe in these rules that have been imposed upon them. And so um, so they, they're not showing any remorse uh, at this point. No um, so remorse. I do think that's right. I think there's going to be a, a big clash between European institutions and Rome. And I think um, if investors get even more worried about this, and I think they will, um, just maybe not initially, um, because it will take a bit of time for uh, Italy's budget deficit to blow out, mm-hmm. um, then Italian banks might once again have to start relying on ELA financing from the ECB. And the ECB could do what it did back in 2011 when Italy's fiscal house wasn't in order. Um, and it essentially said, you need to sort this out or we're cutting your banks off. And Berlusconi um, had to resign a few days later. Mm. Um, now, the ECB could do this again, but again, you've got these populist parties in power. Um, if the government were to collapse off the back of this and you had a new election, it does seem like that might Im- embolden anti-European populist forces even more. So it, it could play into anti-European populist parties' um, hands in Italy. So even though Berlusconi left last time, we had a technocratic government, everything quieted down. Um, this time around, actually, the result could be quite different. And are the markets relaxed or relatively relaxed so far because they believe the new government isn't going to push through its program? That it'll it, it, it'll it, it'll pull back at the last minute, or, or or what's going on? So I honestly think that the markets are fairly relaxed um, because this is all outside of most investors' time horizons. So Italy's budget deficit isn't going to blow out immediately. Um, Italy's average um, debt maturity is about seven years, so it's got some time um, before any kind of real panic could be a problem in the market. So, you know, I think it's all just pushed far outside of portfolio managers' time horizons. They're just not worrying about it right now. Um, I would also say, though, there's no plan for what to do at the European level if Italy gets into trouble. So the ECB will say, well, if Italy gets into trouble, and and by the way, the ECB is going to stop buying bonds. um, Yeah probably at the end of this year, and Italy benefits massively from the quantitative easing program that will be ending. Um, But the ECB says it's fine. If Italy gets into trouble, we'll just give them an OMT program, which is, you know, a bailout 
financed essentially by the ECB and it comes with strict conditionality. Yeah. If you ask politicians in Rome whether they'd be willing to sign up to the conditions that um, an OMT would actually entail, far and away they say, no, um, there's no way we'd ever sign up to those conditions. So there's this huge cognitive dissonance between Rome and Frankfurt on that. And if Italy gets into trouble, I, I just don't think there's a workable plan at the moment. Too big to fail and too big to save, as they say. Um, and also there's a very close link, I think I'm right in saying, between the Italian state and the Italian banks, because the Italian banks are very significant holders of Italian government debt. Yeah, that's right. So the doom loop hasn't been broken at all between Italian banks and the Italian state, which is why Italy is the one country that's pushing so hard against some of the rules that um, Germany in particular is trying to promote in terms of limiting how much of your own sovereign debt your national banks can hold. Um, Italy can't agree to that because, of course, their banks hold so much Italian debt. Do you think uh, we'll see the nervousness on the markets pick up in the, in the short term, Megan, or is this, is this a long burner? I think this is probably a long burner. Um, you know, it's only in the past couple of days that the markets have actually shown any movement at all. Um, I know that the investors I speak to just kind of don't care. They don't think it's an immediate issue. Um, I think that's really short-sighted and, and overly complacent. Um, but I do think it's a long burner. So I don't think it will be a problem in the next year. Um, I think further down the line it could be, though. Okay, and something I suppose which some people say could underline the fundamental problems in the Eurozone and, and, and the fact that uh, it's never really been completed as a single currency area. That's right. So I think, you know, when the next downturn comes, we'll probably all look back at this recovery um, in Europe and think, what you know, what a wasted recovery. We had a chance to actually make, you know, more fundamental institutional changes that would make the Eurozone sustainable, closer to an optimal currency area. But, um, but of course, when things got good and governments weren't pressured as much to agree to these reforms, they stopped doing it. Yeah, it tends to happen. Um, one other area of crisis that has been uh, worrying the markets is the possibility of a trade war. And this has ramped up over the last few months as the US has imposed tariffs on, on, on Chinese imports and the Chinese have reacted. We've seen some moves to try and fix that this week, uh, but it does appear to have run into some difficulties in President Trump warning that too much cannot be expected. Yeah, that's right. So the U.S. has sort of backed off a bit on tariffs. Um, tariffs between the U.S. and China were always a sideshow. Um, and the, the real fundamental issue is uh, who's going to be the global leader in artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. And China has um, a very long-term strategy, um, partly um, summarized in Made in China 2025, this, this medium to long-term growth strategy, whereby the Chinese government is subsidizing a lot of high-tech industries. Um, and also Chinese uh, companies are partnering with foreign companies in order for foreign companies to get access to Chinese markets, um, and they're stealing IP. Um, and so the U.S. is the tariffs are a piece of a larger approach by the U.S. to try to get China to stop this because, of course, the U.S. also wants to be the global leader in artificial intelligence and machine learning. So the, the tariffs are a real side show. Um, they weren't actually going to achieve any of the objectives um, in terms of global dominance in these high-tech areas. Um, but, you know, I do think that uh, China agreeing to buy some more goods and services from the U.S., um, looks like a step back for China. It's not much of one, actually. Um, China was probably going to want to buy more of these agricultural services uh, or goods in particular anyhow. Um, and I think uh, the U.S. sort of gave China a break in return by not mentioning the Made in China 2025 um, strategy in the joint communique. So I think ultimately 
Um, the, the bilateral trade balance between the U.S. and China probably isn't set to move a whole lot, even if China does buy more goods, just because the U.S. is importing so much more from China anyhow. Um, and it doesn't really matter. None of it gets to the heart of the matter. So even if we don't have a trade war, even if we don't have these tariffs, this fundamental issue of who's going to be the world leader in these high-tech industries remains. And so I think there will continue to be tensions between the U.S. and China um, regardless. We might have a bit of a detente going into the midterm elections so that President Trump can announce a win. Um, But beyond that, I think these tensions are, are going to remain. Megan, thanks very much for joining us. Okay, we'll take a short break now, after which we'll look at those half year figures from Greencore and the full year numbers from Ryanair. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back. Greencore's shares took a heavy hit in March when the company warned about the outlook for its US business. Its half-year figures this week got a better reaction from the markets. To discuss this, I'm joined by the Irish Times' Owen Burke Kennedy and Joe Gill from Good Body Stockbrokers. Owen, maybe just put these latest results in context for us. Yeah, well, as as most of your listeners will, will know, Greencore was once the Irish sugar company, but divested of its sugar assets uh, over a decade ago and is now... Uh, the biggest manufacturer of pre-packed sandwiches uh, in the world. Um, it has some massive contracts with the likes of Tesco's and Marks and & Spencer's over here and big contracts in America with Starbucks and Subway. Um, you know, There's a good chance um, if you're eating a sandwich or a wrap or a salad that you'll be um, basically eating a green core product. Anyway, um, a few years ago, it basically set its sights on North America and it secured some big uh, contracts and uh, it was initially quite successful. Uh, in 2016, it purchased um, Peacock Foods for $633 million. Um, however, last year it came unstuck a bit. And what happened was it seems they've lost some contracts in the notoriously kind of volatile food industry over there. And that left it with overcapacity at several sort of older plants over there. And the company's kind of been struggling to deal with that level of overcapacity. And in March, as you said, um, the market was kind of taken by shock by the company announcing an unexpected profit warning and a major restructuring of its U.S. business. It lost up to about 30% of its share value in one day. So um, in the interim, shares have crept back up a little bit. But I suppose uh, a lot of the experts, a lot of the, the investors have just been essentially treading water to see what the company was going to announce this week when it produced its half-year earnings results. So uh, the headline number that uh, most of us journalists homed in on was the 4.4 million loss for six months to the end of March, which was down from a 25 million profit this time last year. So um, ironically, that that actually didn't uh, precipitate a fall in the price. It it did the opposite. Uh, I think the markets had already kind of effectively priced in this kind of loss of earnings and they picked up on what um, was a a better result revenue-wise for the company. Um, they also picked up on a more upbeat outlook for the second half of the year where most of its sales are done. And um, I suppose the company stuck to its earnings forecast, which probably reassured investors to a certain extent. Okay. Um, Joe Gill, some restructuring done in America, some once off costs, but revenues now starting to rise uh, f- fairly strongly. 
Has Patrick Coveney put the worst of the American uh, fears behind him, American troubles behind him? I think he's gone through a lot of uh, difficulty um, in the US market and Peacock Foods, which was acquired for about $750 million just about two years ago, was a very big uh, strategic uh, bet uh, and a major pivot of the operational business in the United States. Um, Certainly, I think investors have taken a lot of reassurance uh, with the fact that guidance for the full year is unchanged yesterday. Um, Mm. I also think the share price movement has been amplified by the level of shorting that's in the stock. Um, People have been betting, particularly some hedge funds, that there would be further bad news coming from the company. Okay, so some people caught on the wrong side of the announcement, perhaps? It it was, I think, the most shorted stock in the FTSE uh, 250 um, this week. People betting that the share was going to fall, basically. Yeah, so they were borrowing shares uh, to to sell shares that didn't own effectively. And it looks like a number of those were surprised, um, positively from a company perspective, by the news yesterday and were scrambling to buy back their shares. So that kind of exaggerated the rise. It went up at about 12% at one stage. Mm. I think it settled up once, about, about 6%. Mm. But, um, yes, it, it does feel as if uh, the U.S. business is stabilizing. Um, they're working in a very tough environment, both in the U.K. and the U.S., as are all food manufacturing companies currently. Um, in the U.K., uh, we've had a sequence of uh, very negative uh, consumer surveys and consumer spending statistics. Uh, Brexit hasn't helped. The weather in the first quarter hasn't helped. And Greencore is um, the largest provider of sandwiches and food-to-go products in the mm. U.K. market. And then in the U.S., um, it's a tough environment as well. A lot of the retailers, a lot of consumers are struggling with uh, kerosene prices up 50% year-on-year, freight, freight prices up. And it's an incredibly competitive retail environment. Um, If you look at what's going on with the likes of Asda and Sainsbury, what Amazon are doing in the space, this is all putting pressure back on food manufacturers, of which Greencore is a very significant player. Mm. And I think I'm right in saying, am I, that the problems in the States mainly related to businesses that Greencore has owned there for years, rather than Peacock Foods, which, as Owen said, it bought in 2006 as as this uh, this major strategic move. Yeah, 2016, Peacock was acquired. And uh, for about three or four years prior to that, Greencore had deployed an organic strategy to to build a footprint in the United States to service large customers such as Starbucks and 7-Eleven. But that organic strategy, I I think, has been struggling for some time. Uh, I suspect one of the reasons why they decided to acquire Peacock was because that legacy business was not doing as well as they hoped, and that has continued to be the case. Mm-hmm. So, yes, Peacock um, uh, you know, is constantly uh, involved in uh, pitches for con- large contracts and they can come and go, um, but underline, I think Peacock is in reasonably good shape, but the legacy business has continued to be a drag, and we've seen that in the figures over the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. So they're rationalising and restructuring now and say they have spare capacity for growth? Yeah, they had, they, they've under. They, they took another exceptional cost yesterday relating mm. to rationalizing and restructuring operations both in the UK and in the US. Mm. Um, and they have significant um, capacity in their US assets so that they can take on many more contracts without having to spend a lot more capital. Mm. Owen, oh, you were talking to Patrick Hovney. What was he saying to you? Yeah, he, he was pretty honest. I mean, he admitted that the, the company was far from turning a corner in the US, um, but he believed that they'd hit upon the right strategy. And that seems to be exclusively based around Peacock and these kind of uh, outsourcing contracts from branded food groups like Tyson and Kraft Heinz and Dole. 
Um, so he, he told me that uh, that Peacock now accounts for about 82% of its uh, sales in the US. So um, they also announced yesterday that we should say that its loss-making plant in Rhode Island would be would be sold off. And the other two plants um, in Jacksonville and Minneapolis, I think, uh, would now be kind of brought into the kind of Peacock network to supply these uh, other big uh, branded food companies. Okay, and... Uh what did he have to say about the companies, other businesses in the UK and Ireland? Well, he said actually the the the, company, the Green Corps in the UK took a hit of around a million um, pounds for the bad weather that occurred uh, early in the earlier part of the year. But on the whole, he felt that revenues were doing pretty strongly in the UK, and that was part of the reason why there was a positive market reaction around the stock. Okay, Joe, the food to go business in the UK, Irish market seems to be going well. Um, selling well for, for, for Green Corps. Well, does, does the market feel it's got a strategy right there? They do. Uh, for some time, investors have been very positive about uh, the strategy in the UK um, mm. because they've invested in scale, um, they've invested well in their assets, and they're, you know, they've struck very significant contracts with the largest retailers in that marketplace. Um, food to go is a kind of a big trend in um, consumption generally in that uh, people increasingly are prepared to eat out of home rather than eat at home and want to eat on the go. So what they offer um, uh, services that market and it's continuing to do very well. Now, they've actually performed uh, better than the broader market. So I think their numbers yesterday were stronger than the total market for food to go. Mm. So their penetration is continuing to rise. And it's convenience food business needs to be going well too. It is. Um, it's a business that's uh, very dynamic and changing a lot. And the internet, and as I mentioned earlier, these big changes in the retail world are influencing the way that uh, part of the food market is developing. But Greencore has got itself well positioned across it. Seem to be some divergence in view from brokers in their commentary after the results. Uh, obviously the shares have taken a heavy hit back from over 250p earlier in the year. What's your view? How is, is there upside in the share price at, at this stage? Well, I should say, first of all, we're broker to Green Corps, so anything I say is entirely biased. Uh, <laughs> but having said that... Um, Chinese was, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, by any definition, Green Corps is trading at a low multiple. So investors look at that and they think mm. long and hard about the cash flow generation in the business, its ability to pay a dividend. Uh, they raised their dividend again yesterday. Um these things would suggest that the stock is of interest at these levels. But I certainly think that uh, they have a long road ahead of them in terms of delivering the type of numbers they've promised to the market. And as they deliver those numbers, there'll be greater confidence in the business. And as confidence grows among investors, then the multiple has the potential to expand. And that's where you get your increase in your share price on top of the organic development of earnings. But there certainly is a two-way view on this stock. There is in most stocks, but it's pretty pronounced in Greencore because we've had such volatility in the share price over the last 12 months. There's a camp out there who are very bearish, and there's a camp out there who believe in the strategy and believe in the management team. And yesterday's share price would suggest the latter are in the okay. um, are dominating right now. Two views make a market, as they mm, say. Exactly. Um, just to touch on uh, another big player in the in in Ireland that reported this week, Ryanair. Full year results uh, showing 10% growth in profits in the year to March to 1.45 billion. Seemingly, the relentless march of Ryanair continues with passenger numbers up 9%. But Michael O'Leary did have a note of caution about this year, and the company said it expects earnings to fall because of higher fuel costs uh, and higher pay for, for some of its staff. Um, what's your view on, on, on its latest results? 
Well, first of all, looking backwards, uh, there, there are a remarkable set of numbers in absolute terms in the airline industry. Uh, the after-tax margin is 20%. There's no airline in the mm. world doing that. Um, they've generated an after-tax profit of about €11 Euros per passenger. Again, no airline globally is doing that. And in light of everything that happened last September, mm. those are pretty remarkable numbers because in September, the during the rostering, the rostering failure, yeah. um, if you remember the headlines at that time were suggesting it's the end of the world for Reiner's yes. business model, the management team, the strategy was off the rails. Mm. And here we are now t- reporting a set of audited numbers uh, for the end of March, which um, are spectacular by any measure. Mm. So I think they got a severe shock in September. Um, I think they're reacting to that by uh, adding significant resource into certain parts of the business, particularly mm. around pilots, around maintenance, around engineering. They've raised pay levels. To that. There's a cost related to that, which is material. Yeah. Um, and they've guided that they're, uh, one of the metrics we use is X fuel per passenger costs. So right. it's the, all the costs in the airline outside of fuel divided by the number of passengers. And they've guided that's going to increase by about 6% over the next year. And typically over the last 20 years, we've seen Ryanair either being stable or down in ex-fuel costs. And the reason for that is because they're absolutely bulking up certain parts of the business in order to ensure nothing like last September is repeated, but importantly as well to set the stage for the next um, set of uh, growth in, in, in the business. And they're fully intent on bringing the passenger volumes from 140 million up to 200 million. And in order to equip for that, they need to resource the business appropriately. That's what we're seeing right now. Now, um, bear in mind that X fuel per cost in Ryanair are about €27 per passenger. The nearest is EasyJet at 51. Aer Lingus is something similar. Uh, Norwegian is higher again than that, Eurowings or the carriers around Europe. So even if you take a 6% increase in the X fuel per cost, per passenger cost, the competitive cost advantage in Ryanair remains very, very material. And that's why investors are enthusiastic about uh, the prospects. So even though um, the company guided down its um, profits for the year to March 2019 um, this week and guided um, up its cost guidance, um, the share price rose 5% on the day, even though a lot of people would have expected it would have fallen on the day. And the reason that it's gone up is because investors are saying this is just another phase of Reiner's development they're laying down the foundations now, not for summer 18, but for summer 19, 20 and 21. Mm. And if they deliver on that, then the share price is well worth uh, investing. And is the company being very cautious in terms of saying the profits will fall this year to 1.25 to 1.35 billion? They are. Um, that's typical. Uh, this mm. time of the year, every year for the 15 years I've been Indeed. looking at Ryanair, there's this what we call UPOD, under promise over deliver um, yeah. uh, approach. Um, I think they got burnt once way back mm. in the... Uh, 90s with a profit warning and didn't want to get caught again. So they start out the year with a very conservative stance. Um, Having said that, they do face significant challenges with fuel, Um, but they're very conservative on yield. That's the average fare typically that they get. Um, Other airlines are suggesting it's a bit better than that this summer. So I think when we get to September, we'll have better sight as to how actually Reiner is performing for the current financial year. But it will not surprise me if they come in at the top end of their guidance or indeed ahead of their guidance before uh, by the time next March comes around. But still some sabre-rattling from pilots in relation to terms and conditions and assurances from the company. Should passengers be worried? Um, On balance, I don't think so because I think there's been very significant deals struck uh, with significant unions around uh, Europe. Um, if you were saying to me now that uh, they were not recognising unions and there was the kind of war that was breaking out last September, I'd probably be more worried for the summer 
than I am now because they've struck a deal with the largest union, which is Balpa in the UK. Um, they've done a deal with the Italians. They're close with the Spanish. Uh, they're close with the Germans. Um, there is a particular issue in Ireland mm. um, which may not get resolved easily and may involve striking. Um, but I think on balance, the probability of being disrupted is less now than it would have been seven months ago. Holidaymakers will keep their fingers crossed as well as investors on that score. Joe Gill of Good Body at Ulmberg Kennedy of the Irish Times. Thank you. OK, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to all our guests, to Jennifer Ryan and JJ Vernon on production and sound, and to all our listeners. Until next time, good luck. <laughs>